We're in our main message series on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels in chronological order, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to discover for ourselves who Jesus was, what he said, what he did, what he taught, because we want to know him for ourselves firsthand. We don't want to hear about him from others. We want to see what his word says directly. And last week, Jesus gave his disciples some very clear-cut, often uncomfortable instructions on how issues and sins should be dealt with between individuals in the church. And as we ended that study, we saw Jesus shifting to the importance of forgiveness, telling Peter to forgive others without any limitations. This week, Jesus is going to keep leading us through this issue of forgiveness. He's going to share a story, a parable, that is an absolute classic and is going to highlight the simple way forgiveness works in the kingdom of God. Have you ever had trouble forgiving someone? Have you ever had that situation or that person that you just can't get out of your mind? And maybe you've even had this where someone says, are you okay? You look mad. And you play it off, but you were just thinking about that person and how mad you are at them. You ever had an issue with unforgiveness where it costs you sleep and you you can't help thinking about it as you lie in bed? Maybe you've gone all the way to the point where even if you encounter someone who has the same name as that person, you immediately dislike them because you don't like people with that name. You know you've been there. Maybe your struggle with forgiveness is even more serious. Maybe what a person did to you floods your mind involuntarily every time you start to care about someone. Maybe fear and anger from your past are sabotaging and ruining every good relationship you could have today. Either you've struggled with unforgiveness or you will struggle with unforgiveness at some point. What Jesus is going to teach us today has the power to change the way you look at forgiveness for the rest of your life. It has the power to free you from the prison of unforgiveness. As we said, last week ended with Jesus telling Peter that believers must be people who forgive over and over again without keeping score. Whatever objections you or I have in mind as we hear that are going to be completely obliterated by Jesus as he continues to teach on this issue of forgiveness. And I love that. Jesus foresees our objections. He foresees all of us who are going to say, yeah, but you don't know my situation. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know my story. Jesus knows that's coming. And what he's about to share addresses that before you can even raise the issue. And I want to say up front, I know this is a a touchy subject. It's a difficult issue. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to go through the parable. We'll explain the parable. Then we're going to see ourselves in the parable. And then we're going to deal with the difficult questions that come out of that. We're not going to be flippant and pretend this is an easy subject. It's a very difficult subject. So we're going to go on a journey together through the text. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 18, verse 23. Jesus keeps teaching and he says, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king, underline king, who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. He wanted to balance his books. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents, underline 10,000 talents. So before we go any further, you need to know what we're talking about when we refer to 10,000 talents. And I was studying up on this and and everything you read in a commentary varies wildly because they're all written at different times. So I wanted to do the modern day math on how much are we talking when we're talking about 10,000 talents. 
And there's two different ways you can run the calculations. The first is the Greek model, which uses different denominations of currency. The second is a system of weight, where a talent refers to a weight of gold or silver. In this case, it's gold. So we'll look at the Greek model first. The standard day's wage at the time of Christ for a Roman soldier or a day laborer was one denarius. One talent consisted of 6,000 denarii. So to earn one talent, an average worker at that time would need to save everything they earned, working 365 days a year for 16 and a half years. That would be one talent. It would take an average worker working every day of the year just over 164,383 years to earn 10,000 talents. If we took the lowest amount of wage you could earn here, minimum wage in Vancouver, which is 10.25 an hour, 10,000 talents would equate to, and this is your first fill-in, $4,920,000,000. That's what we're talking about, $4,920,000,000. So let's look at the alternate system, the system where we're using weight. In this context, a, a talent, as we said, is a specific weight of gold. And the historical view seems to be it was somewhere between 33 and 50 kilograms of gold. Yesterday, gold was trading at $1,516.72 Canadian per troy ounce. There are 32.151 troy ounces in a kilogram. By that math, a talent of gold, using the most conservative measurement, 33 kilograms for a talent, a talent of gold today would be worth around $1,609,214.14. By that math, 10,000 talents would be the equivalent of around $16,092,141,400 Canadian today. Over $16 billion. And just to, to give you perspective so that you don't think, yeah, you, you might be getting the math wrong, Jeff. I mean, you're a pastor. That's why I don't trust you with math. But for just another bit of perspective, in the early 40s BC, so 42, 43, 44 BC, around that time, King Aulets of Egypt paid Gaius Julius Caesar 6,000 talents, just over $9.5 billion by today's math, to grant his country the status of friend and ally of the Roman people. So understand this. If 6,000 talents can buy off the Roman Empire and stop them from invading your country, I think we can all agree that 10,000 talents is a lot of money. I may be speculating, but it's my opinion that Jesus wants us to understand that this man owes his king an absolutely insane amount of money, and it matters that you understand that. The figure is supposed to be laughable and ludicrous. That's the point. Side note, the numbers are so large that the only explanation is that the servants that we're talking about here are provincial governors under the king. And as provincial governors, they would collect taxes from the people of their province on behalf of the king and pay the king. So what's been happening? Well, he's been collecting more than he's been passing on to the king. He's been skimming before he gives the money to the king. He's been taken off the top, cooking the book, stealing from the king. Back to verse 25. But as, and then underline, he was not able to pay. You think? He was not able to pay. 
his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. Even though this still wouldn't settle his debt, it was the just thing to do under the law. It was justice under the law. Just as it is today, if if you have a debt you can't pay, they will still liquidate everything you own toward the debt. That's what we're talking about here. And this time that would include you and your family sold into slavery. He had lost everything. All his possessions would be taken. His family lost to slavery. Verse 26, the servant therefore fell down before him saying, master, and then underline, have patience with me and I will pay you all. He can't. There's no way he can pay it all back. The master knows this. So the master doesn't agree to let the servant work off his debt because he can't. Instead, The king does the unthinkable. Then the master of that servant was, underline this, moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. He wiped the debt of that man completely away. Just like that. Just like that. Can you imagine the emotion that pours over this servant as he goes from utter despair and hopelessness to being completely released? completely free, just wiped away. That's it, that's it, done, as though it never happened. Sadly, the emotions wore off very quickly, apparently, because verse 28 tells us, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii. For perspective, a 100 denarii would be about 100 days wages, which is about $8,200 by today's math, which you may realize is slightly less than $4,920,000,000. So the forgiven servant goes and tracks down another one of the king's servants who owes him 8,200 bucks. It says, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. Underline, you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, see if this sounds familiar, have patience with me and I will pay you all. It's the exact Same words used in verse 26 by the servant with the unpayable debt. The difference is this servant owes only a minuscule fraction of what the other servant was forgiven. Verse 30, and he would not, he wouldn't have patience with him, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were underlined very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. These fellow servants knew the compassion and mercy of their master. They knew how gracious he had been with this fellow servant. So this servant's lack of forgiveness grieved his peers. Verse 32, then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant. Underline, I forgave you all. I forgave you all that debt. Because you begged me, and then underline all of verse 33, should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? I believe that there are no words recorded from the servant at this point because he didn't say anything. What could he say? He had nothing to say. The king was unquestionably right. And his master was angry, underline angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. 
The servant is thrown back in jail until he repays all he owes to the king, but the amount is still unpayable. And I want to suggest to you that the servant thrown back in jail actually has two options. The first is try and earn his way out of prison, pay back the debt, which we know is impossible. The second option is he could forgive his fellow servant. And I say that because the king is a compassionate man. And were the servant to go back to him and say, I was wrong, I see that now. I received such great mercy from you, and yet I wouldn't give even a fraction of that same mercy to my fellow servant. Please forgive me. Were the servant to do that, I believe the king would let him go free again. The king directly linked the servant's unforgiveness to his decision to not forgive his fellow servant. Therefore, if he does forgive his fellow servant, I believe the master would do the same for him. That's the parable Jesus tells, and then he does what we suspected he was doing all along. He tells us the stories really about each of us. In verse 35, underline the whole thing, he says, so my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. This parable raises some difficult issues, very difficult issues for some of us because some of us have been so deeply wronged by other people. And we're gonna get into that, but as I said earlier, first I want us to pick up on some things that I believe the Lord would have us see in his parable. The servant, through his sinful decisions, accumulated a debt to the king that he could never repay. In verse 25 it says, he was not able to pay. This is your next fill-in. So too, through our sin, we have accumulated a debt to God that is so great we could never repay it. Through our sin, we have accumulated a debt to God that is so great we could never repay it. That's true of every single one of us. If justice were served, the servant in the story would be imprisoned and tormented. So too, if justice were served to us, we would be imprisoned and tormented in hell for our sin. That would be justice. In verse 27, we read, the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Make a note of this. In his mercy, Jesus forgave us completely at the price of his own life. In his mercy, Jesus forgave us completely at the price of his own life. We've been justified just as if I never sinned. Just like that. Every sin, past, present, and future, forgiven. The debt erased, wiped clean. In verse 28, we read, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii. And I want to point something out here. It's not a trick question. Does this servant owe the other man 100 denarii? Yeah, he, he owes him. It's a legitimate debt. Jesus is not telling us that what other people owe us, when other people wrong us, he's not saying that's not real. He's not saying it doesn't exist anymore. It's a real debt, there's a real offense there. The man really is in the wrong. We will be, and he wants us to know this, we will be legitimately wronged by other people who will then become indebted to us. It's gonna happen. We will be wronged by other people. However, Jesus uses the numbers he does, 10,000 talents and 100 denarii to make this point, make a note of this. Whatever we are owed by others, it does not compare to the amount we've been forgiven by God. 
whatever we are owed by others, it does not compare to the amount we've been forgiven by God. That's what he wants us to realize. I know that's difficult. We're going to get to that. But he wants us to understand whatever it is, the worst thing, it doesn't compare to what you've been forgiven. It doesn't. Why is this situation so, so grievous to everyone? And we all know it. it's because a lack of forgiveness from those who have been greatly forgiven is one of the worst kinds of hypocrisy. To be greatly forgiven and not be a forgiving person is a great hypocrisy. In verse 31 we read, when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved. Make a note of this, it grieves other believers when a believer refuses to forgive. It grieves other believers when a believer refuses to forgive. It's heartbreaking to see someone who comes to church and sings about the incredible forgiveness of God, who weeps when we study the scriptures and pour over his amazing grace, who takes communion. It's heartbreaking to see that person not connect the mercy they've received from Jesus to their relationships. It's grievous. It's heartbreaking. Fellow believers are grieved by a lack of forgiveness, but Jesus told us that the king, the Lord, is angered by a lack of forgiveness. And we don't want to explain this away or come up with some really terrible interpretation so that we can pretend it doesn't say angry. It says angry because the king was angry. Verse 34, his master was angry. It is hugely offensive to the Lord when we don't forgive others. It's offensive to him. When you think about it, he has every reason to be offended. He has every reason to be angered because he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to the earth to be beaten and crucified, to be killed in order that you and I might be forgiven the debt we will accumulate over the course of our entire lives. That's the price God paid for our forgiveness. Do you understand why it might anger him when we refuse to forgive? even after he's asked us to? Do you understand why you might be angered and think, you would have no relationship with me? None. Had Jesus not died in your place so that you could be forgiven. And now when I ask you to forgive, you say no. It angers him. In verse 34, 35, we read, and his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you if you do not from your heart forgive your brother his trespasses. We read this and our first thought is, wait a minute, does this mean if I don't forgive that I'm not saved? And that's an important question given the frankness of the words of Jesus. There's not a lot of room for alternative explanations, but I think the best explanation might be to look at this through a similar lens as the book of James. You see, in the early church, there was this tension between the theological relationship between good works, living a righteous life, and the grace of God. So the question was being asked, if we're saved by grace alone, if all our sins are forgiven, if it's the mercy of Jesus that saves us, then why live a good life? Why live a righteous life? I mean, what, what's the point? 
As I've commented before, it's a question pondered by every single teenager during their journey of faith. Why bother? And the book of James explains it this way. It says, listen, good works don't save a person. However, good works are the natural byproduct of the presence of the Holy Spirit in a person. In other words, good works are the evidence that a person has been saved. They are what naturally flow out of the life of a person who belongs to Jesus. If there's no good works in a person's life, there's probably not God in that person's life. It's like fruit on a tree, which is what Galatians talks about. In Galatians, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit. When a person is saved, in Ephesians 1, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit takes up residence in a person. And then Paul, who wrote Ephesians, writes in Galatians, hey, there's a fruit of the Spirit. This is what it looks like. This is what the Holy Spirit produces in a person's life. So we don't read that list of the fruit of the Spirit and go, I'm going to try and do all these things so that I will have the Holy Spirit in me. That's not what it's saying. It's saying, no, when you have the Holy Spirit in you, this is the fruit that shows up in your life. These are the things that are growing in your life. That's the idea that we're talking about here. It's this, when you understand how much you've been forgiven by God, it will naturally make you into a forgiving person. Put it this way, write this down. Forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. Does forgiving other people save you? No. But if you're not forgiving others, then you need to seriously ask yourself if you've really experienced, if you've really received and understood the forgiveness that Jesus has extended to you. Forgiving others doesn't save you, but forgiving others is an evidence that you've been forgiven. Paul says this in Ephesians 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Being a person who forgives radically and lives in freedom from bitterness begins with understanding that you've been forgiven radically in a way that you could never repay. Jesus expects us to forgive those who are indebted to us because it reveals that we understand and appreciate the gravity and the magnitude of the forgiveness we've received from our King, Jesus Christ. Every time we forgive others, it reveals that we understand we've been forgiven. We get it. So we get those last two verses aren't really a threat. They're more of a warning, a warning that believers, when it all comes down to it, believers forgive, even when it's incredibly difficult. You think of Jesus hanging on the cross. What does he pray to his Father in heaven? He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. He is praying for men that he ultimately created as they crucify him to a tree that he spoke into being and stand up that tree, that cross, in a hole in the earth that he breathed into existence. Jesus is praying for those men. He is forgiving them even as they are murdering their own creator. This is why Jesus has the right to command us to forgive even when it's difficult. He has that right as God, but he came to the earth and he earned that right as a man. He can command us to forgive and not be a hypocrite in the slightest because he's done it. He's walked the walk in the most difficult of circumstances. He knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be wronged. He's not out of touch when he asks us to forgive. What's the actual warning that Jesus is giving at the end of this parable? 
And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to each of you if from your heart you do not forgive your brother his trespasses. The warning seems to be that we'll be thrown in prison and tormented, that we will, have, we will not have our debt forgiven if we do not forgive others when they wrong us. So what does that mean? The prison and torment would seem to not be literal in the sense of a physical prison with literal tormentors. And I say that because when you or I are unforgiving towards someone, a group from the church doesn't show up at the door and drag us off to prison to be tortured. It's a ministry we're looking to add in the future, but there's some legal issues we've got to work through apparently. So what's the prison and torment that Jesus is talking about? What's the forgiveness that we will not receive unless we forgive? You know, when we don't forgive a person, the bitterness that takes root in our life is horrific. It affects all areas of our life, all areas of our life. It poisons our relationships because we have trust issues and baseless suspicions and we see the worst in other people because we're so on guard against getting wounded again. We think about how we were wronged all the time. We lie on our beds and we think about it and we can't fall asleep at night. We rehash the events over and over and think about what we should have done then or what we would do now if we had the courage or immunity from legal prosecution. It eats us up on the inside. It, it makes us ugly from the inside out. Many of you have heard the famous quote that unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to drop dead. And man, is that ever true. We withhold forgiveness out of a desire to make the other person suffer and what's really going on is we're the one in prison, hands on the bars, yelling out the window, I hope you're miserable. <laughs> Blind to the fact that we're the one in prison. I'll show you. It's folly. It's foolishness. You're killing yourself from the inside out. We all know people right now who are in torment, who are in prison because they will not forgive someone who's wronged them. And in reality, they're the one who's suffering more than the person who wronged them. Maybe you're that person who's in prison and being tormented because you just can't bring yourself to forgive. You see, write this down. The Lord tells us to forgive not only for the sake of the offender, but for the sake of the one who's been offended. The Lord tells us to forgive not only for the sake of the offender, but for the sake of the one who has been offended. And let me just, just point this out to you, especially to those of you who are married, those of you who are parents. In the story, who's sold into slavery? Is it just the man? It's his wife. It's his children. If you are holding unforgiveness against someone, it is affecting your whole family. And it is affecting your marriage. It is affecting your children. Don't lie to yourself and think that it's not. It's affecting your kids, it's affecting your spouse. This man's sins caused his whole family to almost be brought into slavery. The same is true of unforgiveness. Don't do that to your family. It's always about more than just you or me. It's always about more than just you or me. So you might hear what we've just said and, and there's people who play up that angle and they say, you should forgive because you don't want to let the person who offended you steal even an ounce of happiness and the best way you can stick it to them is by forgiving them. That's not really what Jesus is talking about. He, he's not saying that we're to forgive people because we angrily refuse to give them any power over us. And Jesus isn't saying that we forgive with 
teeth grinding and clenched jaw because we want to obey the Bible. Man, I hate that guy, but Jesus told me to forgive, so I'm going to forgive that piece of... No, Jesus throws out the phrase, from the heart. From the heart. We're to forgive from the heart. We don't have to wonder what he means by that phrase because the whole parable tells us what he means when he says from the heart. In the parable, why should the servant forgive the other servant? Because the king commanded it? No, we all get it. He should forgive the other servant because he's just been forgiven over $4 billion worth of debt. That's why he should forgive. Not because the king says so, but because he's experienced radical, dramatic, to the nth degree forgiveness. That's why he should forgive. That's what it means to forgive from the heart. The motivation is supposed to be understanding how much you've been forgiven. Not a desire to stop the other person from ruining your future. Not legalism, but understanding you've experienced radical forgiveness from a debt you could never repay at the feet of your master, your king. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says you need to forgive from the heart. You know, if you're walking with Jesus, if you're living with Jesus, you'll find that as the years go by, your view of yourself will not go up and up and up and up. On the contrary, the more time you spend with the Lord, the more acutely aware you become of your own sin and just how much of a sinner you really are. You know, I am worse than I ever thought I would be. That's what I've realized. I find new ways to sin all the time. I still struggle with things I thought I would have been done with years ago. I'm constantly amazed at the depravity of my mind and the thoughts that come up within myself. I'm worse than I ever thought I would be. And I understand why Paul would consider himself the chief of sinners. He's not being fraudulently humble. He's just been walking with Jesus so closely that he now sees himself for, for what he really is. And the more I walk with Jesus, the more I realize that my sin is worse than I ever thought it would be. But at the same time, the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of the grace of God is more than I ever dared to dream it would be. It's new every morning. It's inexhaustible. And whatever my sin is, his grace is greater. It's greater. And when I understand just how much I've been forgiven for Jesus, when I understand just how much I am being forgiven by Jesus, when I understand just how much I have yet to be forgiven by Jesus, I cannot withhold forgiveness from another person. I can't. Because forgiven people forgive people. Forgiven people forgive people. That's what Jesus is talking about when he commands us to forgive from the heart. Write this down and think about this. We are not to forgive after weighing the sins of the offender, but after weighing our own sins. We are not to forgive after weighing the sins of the offender, but after weighing our own sins. And we've each seen how Unforgiveness can put us in prison and torment, but how will it stop us from receiving the forgiveness of God? It's not saying that God won't forgive you. This is saying that you refuse to receive his forgiveness. There's a difference. Jesus' death on the cross paid for all sin. It provided forgiveness for everybody, but not everybody will receive it. 
Jesus is teaching us this. Write this down. If we don't know how to release forgiveness, it's probably because we haven't figured out how to really receive it. If we don't know how to release forgiveness, it's because we haven't figured out how to really receive it. Either we don't really think we needed it that badly, so we're not really that moved by it, or we've never really let Jesus fully forgive us. We've never really fully received that. We've never really got to the place where we're on our knees, moved to tears the way that the servant with the unpayable debt would have been in that moment when the king said, you're forgiven. If you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then your sins are forgiven. From the Lord's perspective, he doesn't even remember them anymore. But if you don't know how to really receive that, you'll still be haunted by guilt and shame and condemnation from your past sins and failures. You'll still be held down, chained down, tormented by your own sins. And although you're saved, you won't really receive it in a healing way. You won't receive that forgiveness in a healing way until you release forgiveness to other people. When you put it all together, unforgiveness is a miserable state to live in. It's the worst way to live. Okay, so the solution to learning how to forgive is learning how to truly receive God's forgiveness. But how do you do that practically? And how do you forgive the unforgivable? People sometimes do horrific, terrible things to other people. Someone may have done horrific, terrible things to you. Jesus is not saying that those things don't matter. Their debt to you is very, very real. What Jesus is telling us is that just as love is a choice and not an emotion, so too is forgiveness a choice and not an emotion. Write that down. Forgiveness is a choice and not an emotion. If you're waiting for the day when you wake up and just aren't mad at them anymore, you're gonna be waiting a long, long time. When we talk about forgiveness, we're not claiming that all your hostile feelings toward a person will disappear immediately. That takes a long time. Sometimes you don't get there. We're not claiming that you have to pretend it never happened. I know a lot of people who will actually teach, well, the Lord forgets your sins, so we should forget other people's sins. How? How? I don't know about you, but I, I, I can't. You can't just forget. We're not capable of doing that because we're not God. And I also think that that instruction's a little short-sighted for the woman who's in a presently abusive relationship. I don't think that the Lord would have her simply forget what's happened and go back for more. That's why we always say that restoration is the result of forgiveness from the offended and repentance from the offender. You need both in order to have restoration. Jesus commands us to forgive no matter what the other person does with their part of the equation. So to forgive someone means that you choose to release them of that debt that they owe you. In your mind and in your heart, you contemplate everything that the Lord has released you from and then you release that other person from the debt they owe to you. You say, from now on, in my mind, in my heart, my soul, they owe me nothing. They're not indebted to me. Many of you know that when Jesus was on the cross, breathing his last breath, he cries out the words, it is finished. And many of you know that in the original language, the word there is tetelestai, which actually means paid in full. It was the word that was stamped onto certificates of debt to show that the debt had been fully paid. And that's what Jesus cried out just before he gave his life to pay your debt and my debt of sin. Paid in full. Forgiveness is releasing another person from the debt they owe to you. It is considering it finished. 
When anger and bitterness rise up in your heart, you don't meditate on it. You choose to dismiss it by saying within yourself, their debt is forgiven. That's done. It's over. That's what it means to forgive. It's a choice. It's not an emotion. So let's get real. I can share all of this with you. We can sing some songs after this and you can be moved by God's word, moved by Jesus, and you can choose to forgive that person that you've been holding bitterness against. But what's gonna help you walk out that forgiveness and stay in that forgiveness a month from now, a week from now? One of the great disciplines of the Christian faith that's really been lost in the modern church is confession, confession. And in this case, I'm not even talking about confession to another person, I'm talking about confession to the Lord. And I'm not talking about general confession like, Lord, please forgive me for all the ways that I've sinned this week, blanket, covered, handled. I'm talking about specific confession where you name and you list your sins to the Lord. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And John is talking about confessing individual sins, taking the time to pray, Lord, I've not been considerate to my wife. I've been selfish. I was snappy and short with her. I was quick to anger. I was cruel unintentionally. And going through every sin you can remember since the last time you confessed and then praying, Father, please forgive me. Thank you that you do forgive me and I'm forgiven. Do you know what you're doing when you do that? You know why the Bible tells you to do that? Because when you do that, you are preaching the gospel to yourself. You're preaching the gospel to yourself. You're reminding yourself, hey, I really need his forgiveness. And holy smokes, I forgot how much I need his forgiveness. You're putting yourself back in the right position so that the natural human thing doesn't happen where you get puffed up and self-obsessed. You begin to realize, oh man, I've still got a long, long way to go. And the most perfect place to do that is at the table of communion. Before you take the elements, you confess your sins to the Lord and he'll be faithful to forgive you. And then when you eat and drink the elements which represent the body and blood of Jesus, which was the cost of the forgiveness that you just experienced, the forgiveness that you just needed for all those sins you listed, you're left in awe of the grace of God. You experience what I shared earlier, the reality that I am worse than I ever thought I would be still sinning in ways I thought I would have outgrown years ago, still finding new ways to sin. When you confess your sins specifically and are confronted with the price Jesus paid for your sins, guess what? It is very, very difficult to withhold forgiveness from another person. Think of the Lord's Prayer. What did Jesus instruct his disciples to pray? Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. The order matters. Did you get that? The order matters. First, we ask the Lord for forgiveness and we experience forgiveness. Then with that perspective, out of that experience, we forgive others. If you can't bring yourself to forgive someone, I would encourage you to start by intimately revisiting just how much you need the forgiveness of God. Just how much you've been forgiven by him. Confess your sins individually. Acknowledge your need for forgiveness. Seek the Lord's forgiveness. Experience his forgiveness. Eat and drink at the table of communion. Remember the broken body and blood of Jesus that paid for your forgiveness. Start there. And then deal with that person you just can't seem to forgive. Because the order matters. 
Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And then you come back next week and you do it again. And you do it again. And you do it again. And you do it yourself at home if you need to again. And again, you confess your sins. You take communion. And you continually forgive out of an understanding that you've been forgiven. Write this down. The discipline of confession gives us the correct perspective on forgiveness. The discipline of confession gives us the correct perspective on forgiveness. Maybe you've been hurt so badly that you just can't forgive. Maybe you're imprisoned right now, being robbed of joy and peace, and you don't know how to get out. The answer is in this parable. The king commanded that the servant remain in prison until his debt be paid. But how could the servant earn his way out of prison? He can't. The only way he can get out is to go and ask his master for forgiveness, for his master is a compassionate man. Forgive me, master. I cannot do it. I can't pay this debt. I was wrong for not forgiving that person. I realize that now. I'm a mess. I'm in torment. I'm in prison. Please forgive me. The compassionate king would forgive him again. If Jesus says we're to be a people who forgive over and over and over again, how much more will our Father in heaven forgive us when we go to him and say, forgive me for not forgiving, Lord. Forgive me for not forgiving. Change my heart. He'll change us if we ask. I'll say this in conclusion. The big lesson is that we don't want to choose a works-based system of forgiveness. Anybody here want a works-based system of forgiveness? You've wronged God, you just work your way out of it. Anybody want to live in that system? It's a hopeless system. We all know that. None of us can do enough good works to earn our salvation. We all want a mercy-based system of forgiveness. And praise God, that's what Jesus gave us, mercy. But if we want to live in a mercy-based system of forgiveness, Jesus says, then you have to live in a mercy-based system of forgiveness. Not just you. You. Your world. Everyone you interact with. You want to live in a mercy economy, then you have to live in a mercy economy. You want to receive forgiveness, you have to release forgiveness. Because forgiven people forgive people. As believers... Jesus has stripped us of the right to not forgive. We no longer have that right. When he forgave us all of our sins at the price of his life, he said, you guys don't have that right anymore. What I've done for you on the cross means you have to forgive. It's a package deal. So if this morning you're tormented in a prison of unforgiveness, humble yourself and go to the master Repent for not forgiving that person or those people. Ask him to change you. Confess your sins. Take communion. Confess your sins individually and be moved by the fact that God's forgiven you. He'll change your heart as you surrender to the Holy Spirit and release those people from the debt they owe you. You don't want to live your life in prison and torment. You don't want to live your life there. The Lord doesn't want you to live your life there. Start with yourself experiencing the forgiveness of Jesus. Let me pray for you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, we know that if we give the enemy just a small foothold, 
Lord, he'll go to work. He'll pry open the door. He'll make his way into our lives. Father, we know that one of the easiest ways that can happen is through unforgiveness. And you even acknowledge in your word that we will be wronged. Many people in this room have been legitimately wronged. But Lord, how we have wronged you. God, how we have sinned against you and grieved you over and over and over. And you forgave us. And then Lord, how we continued to sin even after we knew about your grace and the cost of it. Lord, how we continue to sin even day to day right now, even though we know what it costs you to forgive us, Lord. Your grace knows no bounds. It has no limits. And you forgive us our debt every single day. You keep the slate clean. Father, I pray for each of us this morning that we would be impacted by that truth in a fresh new way today, that you have forgiven us our debt of sin. Lord, may we take communion and be moved again as we confess our sins that you've forgiven us. And then, Lord, out of that, we choose to forgive those who have wronged us from the heart, not out of legalism, not out of bitterness, but out of perspective, Seeing how much you've forgiven us, we forgive from the heart and say, Lord, we release them in the name of Jesus. And even though we struggle to forget, every time it comes up again, we choose to say we forgive them in the name of Jesus. For great is the forgiveness that we've received through the name of Jesus. Father, I pray right now you would give the strength by your Holy Spirit to every person in this room who needs to forgive who needs to let something go. Help us to start with experiencing your forgiveness over again, Lord Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.